Good morning. All right, if you got your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 20. We're gonna, I'm going to read most of this chapter and then on to chapter 21. I'm grateful for Molly being here. She's going to be, I think, out in uh, guest services afterwards if you'd like to connect with her. And so she's already connected with several of you and grateful. I was in the country where she served, and uh, I think this particular country uh, by 2025 is going to have uh, like 100 cities over uh, 2, 3 million people. And to have a city of a million people right now is pretty small in that city because they're a dime a dozen. So there's a great, great need there. Genesis 20, and I'm going to read um, most of the chapter. And the big idea or, or takeaway or title of the message is complication of sin does not hinder God's faithfulness to his promises. That's a long title. I think that's really what's going on here in chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21 as we see Isaac, this promised child that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah twice by name. Um, I think we're seeing uh, this passage that there's sin, there's disobedience there in terms of what Abraham does or doesn't do, and complication of sin does not hinder God's faithfulness to his promises, and I'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Here's what the word says. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said to, of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he, Abraham, not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. An unbeliever, someone who's not a follower of God, rebuking somebody who should know better. Right? I don't know if you've ever had anybody like that who's not a follower of Christ, maybe come alongside you and say, Hey, this is not how Christians should believe, and this is not Christians how, how they should act. That's happened to me several times. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is, my, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Half-truth justifying his disobedience, his deceptiveness. And ladies, I want you to think about verse 13. Tell me if you think this is good husbandry and this is the type of man that you would want to be with. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. He's talking to his wife. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Ladies, what do you think? Does that endear you? Would that endear you if you're in a situation and your husband out of a posture and a commitment to self-preservation, says to you, here's the kindness I'd like you to show to me. Don't tell everybody that you're my wife. Tell everybody that you're 
my sister. By the way, Sarah is 90 years old. So she, she is a good-looking woman at age 90. At age 90, okay? Then, verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Chapter 21, skip it down to verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Different kind of laughter. She laughed previously at the fact that God said, you're going to bear a child. She laughed in the tent. She said, I did not laugh. And the angel of the Lord said, oh, but you did. And now she says, everyone's going to laugh over me. It's not the same type of laughter. Now they're laughing with joy over what God has done for Sarah and Abraham. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Complications of sin will not hinder God's faithfulness to his promises. I love this verse, Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. I think about this verse when I think about the narrative of Abraham. Here's what Joshua chapter 21, verse 45 says. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. All the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and on down the line. All the promises that God restated time and time again came to pass at the house of Israel. All came to pass, the writer of Joshua says. We see in the scriptures, complications of sin do not hinder God's faithfulness to his promises. If you were to fast forward 30 chapters from Genesis chapter 20, we'll be there in seven or eight months. Um, Joseph is interacting with his brothers. If you know the story of Joseph, the narrative of Joseph, it really takes the latter part of Genesis, Genesis 38 through 50, and his brothers hated Joseph. Joseph was a precocious, probably obnoxious individual, to be honest. You kind of get that reading when you read the book of Genesis, and you think about how he interacted with his brothers. His father favored him over against his other sons. That doesn't help. Favoritism is not good. And so his brothers sought to rid themselves of their brother Joseph. And so they put him in a, a hole, left him to die, and then they see a caravan of people taking, going far away from where they live. They sell him into slavery, hoping that they will never have to see him again. God, in his providence and his sovereignty, allows Joseph to have favor after favor with people. Joseph becomes a very powerful, authoritative individual. And through a famine, uh, his brothers eventually come to Egypt and they finally meet him as Joseph uh, reveals his identity. And they're trying to apologize all over themselves. Hey, we're sorry, we didn't mean it. We're so, please forgive us. And Joseph says in verse 20 of chapter 50, you meant it for evil. The inclinations of your heart were evil. You meant it for wrong, but God meant it for, God meant it for good. I, I use the word sovereignty and providence almost every Sunday to talk about the character of God, that God is not aloof, 
The plans of God are not arbitrary, but all things come to us through his fatherly hand, and God is in control. And yet, we see in Genesis 12, 13, 14, on through the book of Genesis, there are complications that sin brings about, but it does not hinder God's faithfulness to his promises. It does not mean, so please don't hear me say, that we can live any which way we want. I'm saying that the secret things belong to the Lord and there is a hand of providence. The providential hand of God is moving all things, all things, towards the fruition of his plan. You cannot thwart God's plan. We were just singing unstoppable God. You think, well, where, where does the Bible speak about the unstoppable characteristic of God all throughout the scriptures. Man's sinfulness, woman's sinfulness, our disobedience cannot ultimately hinder God's faithfulness to his promises coming to fruition. Let me just give you a little recap of the narrative of Abraham. They were probably asking the questions as you might ask the question, how can God be faithful to his promises? Chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, verse 5 through 6 Verse 16, Abraham and Sarah still have no children, and it's becoming more and more unlikely that they are going to have children. They are 85 and 75 years old. And Sarah, at that time Sarai, her name has not been changed, in chapter 16, verses 2 through 3, comes up with an alternative plan. She looks at her circumstances, and in favor of expediency, in favor of distrust, she decides to take matters into her own hand, and she tells her husband, Abraham, take Hagar, my maidservant, go into her, have a relationship with her. Hagar becomes pregnant, and they have a child named Ishmael. Voila, conflict is resolved. This is the child that God is going to bless all the nations and people of the earth, and that's not what God is going to do. It's not going to come through Ishmael. It's not going to come through his servant Eleazar, as Abraham thought at one time. It's not going to come through his nephew Lot. It's going to come through chapter 17, verse 1, chapter 18, verse 10. It's going to come through their line, through Sarah. She is going to have a child biologically, and it's going to be through them, and his name's going to be Isaac. There's a principle of repetition that we see in the Scriptures. Pastor Brian Goodman, our pastor emeritus who was here for 23 and a half years, probably said things at times that you may have thought, I wish he'd stop saying the same thing. Now, I've only been here for just shy of three and a half years, and you might have said multiple times, Nate is saying the same things. I am quite certain that I'm not saying much, if anything, that Pastor Brian hasn't already said and said it in a more eloquent, profound fashion. My question is, are you believing it? Are you doing it? I said this before when I was at a previous church. We allowed the students to actually weigh in on what they wanted in a student pastor, which is really a horrible idea because kids don't really know what they want. So, so I look back and think, the, the Lord was kind. Um, and I had one person said, um, can we get a student pastor, and I've said this before, can we get a student pastor who's not going to continually tell us to read the Bible, share the gospel, and pray, and live for Jesus in our schools? And I said, hey, no problem, just a couple questions. Are you reading your Bible? I struggle with reading my Bible. Do you have gospel conversations? No, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, Pastor Nate. Do you talk to the Father in prayer? I, I want to, but I just, life is busy. Are you living out your faith in the school? 
No, it's difficult. So let me tell you what I'm going to get. I'm going to try to find somebody who's going to tell you to read the Bible and tell you to have gospel conversations, talk to the Father, and live out your faith in school. She says, point taken, I'll be quiet. We need to continually hear the truths of God, don't we? We need to continually hear the truths of God. Abraham is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. He's one of our great patriarchs. Did Abraham need to continually be reminded of God's character and promises? Yes. And does he continually show himself to be foolish and not actually believe in the promises of God? Yes. Are we kind of like Abraham at times? Not all the time, but at times. Maybe not you, but I am. The answer for me is yes. There's a principle of repetition that we need to continually hear the truths of God. Now we come to Genesis 20. Genesis 20 is strikingly familiar to Genesis chapter 12. God, I think, is giving Abraham another opportunity to actually believe in his promises, to actually be a man who's going to trust in God. And what does Abraham do that he does in Genesis 12? Hey, listen, Sarah, you're 90. You're still really attractive. And just like the famine that occurred and prompted us to go to Egypt and I was going to interact with Pharaoh, a powerful man, and I told you then, tell everybody that I'm your brother. You're not my wife. You're my sister. In the same way, let's do that again. Look at verse 13. I already read it. This was his MO. This is not an isolated incident. Oh, Abraham, you know, Nate, you're, you're giving him a hard way. Give him, be gracious, be merciful. It was just an isolated incident. Verse 13, and when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Everywhere we go, tell people that you are my sister. He engages in deception, and what's so surprising is that God twice, chapter 17, verse 16, chapter 18, verses 10 through 14, God had said, not only are you going to have a child, but his name is going to be Isaac. And yet, Abraham was a little dense and hard of hearing, certainly hard in terms of putting these things into practice. And what is Abraham doing? You'll see on the screens, he's running the risk of the promised child by allowing his wife to be taken into a king's harem. It conveys a certain recklessness with his bride, and it certainly conveys a recklessness with the promise of God. Derek Kidner, a commentator, says, On the brink of Isaac's birth story, there, here is the very promise put in jeopardy, traded away for personal safety. If it's ever going to be fulfilled, it owes very little to man. I am grateful that God's promises, God's ways, God's plan coming to fruition ultimately do not rest upon my obedience. Boy, we would be in a lot of trouble. And we would be in a lot of trouble if it rested upon your obedience. Morally as well as physically, it will clearly have to be achieved by the grace of God. So 25 years later, and ten chapters later, we see the resolution. There's this principle again, just like the principle of repetition. God's repetitive, the truths of God, the promises of God, the plan of God is redundant. It's seen all throughout Scripture. He's continually restating it. There's also this principle that many of us need to learn, I need to learn, that God is not slow in keeping His 
promises. 25 years later, and we'll see in chapter 21, the Lord, at the appointed time, brings forth a child. But before that, we have this inter interaction between uh, Abimelech and, and Sarah. And she says, he's my brother. He goes, okay, good. I wouldn't want to take a married man's wife. And so he brings her into his harem, and then God has some divine intervention with Abimelech. Verses 3 through 7. He appears to him in a dream and says, you better not do what you're about to do. If you do, you're going to die. That's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. And uh, this man's a prophet. Give back his wife. And then in verses 8 through 13, they have this exchange. And Abimelech recounts, this king recounts, the great fear that had consumed his household over against a lack of fear and a lack of reverence for who God was. Abimelech and his household had great fear. Abimelech engages with him twice to no response from Abraham. Abimelech and his household had a right reverence and fear for God, whereas in contrast, Abraham did not. What does it mean to fear the Lord? There's lots of Christian sayings, Christian truths, that we say, and oftentimes we have trouble articulating what, it, what does it actually mean? What does it mean to fear the Lord? To fear the Lord means to have a sustained, joyful, astonished awe and wonder or amazement before God. There was an amazement of who God is and his ways over against Abraham not having a joyful, astonished, sustained amazement and wonder before God. Abraham begins to really doubt God's goodness. God, even though he's restated several times his promise to Abraham, Abraham thinks he has to take it into his own hands, which is strikingly familiar to what happened in Genesis 16 with Sarai. I know God has said this promise, but we're going to have to bring it about on our own. So you go into Hagar, and the promise will be fulfilled through her. Well, they have this interaction, and Abraham finally responds in verse 11. I didn't think there was any fear in this household, which is ironic because there was fear there. They reverenced the Lord, but Abraham did not. Think back over Abraham's life. Divine blessing and success followed him wherever he went, in spite of his disobedience. He defeated kings. He had a close relational intimacy with God, but his faith in this particular instant, his faith was a fear that was influenced by a fear of the wrong things. His faith was influenced by a fear of the wrong things. What did he want? What controlled him? What consumed him? Preservation of life. Preservation of life. That's what he wanted. Over against husbandry, over against believing and trusting in the promises of God, Abraham was saying that personal safety was more important than obedience. That had become his ruling desire, if you will, his pursuit. It's what controlled him. Not a fear of the Lord, not God's promises, not God's ways, not God's purposes, but a self-preservation, a commitment to self-preservation. So a question that I ask myself is, what do I fear? What controls me? What consumes me? Let me give you some examples. Control, at times, controls me. I'll say something like this. Lord, I trust you, but I need to know 
at all times how everything is going to work out. <laughs> I'm committed to trusting in you, but I want to know how everything is going to come to fruition. I know nobody else struggles with that. That's just me. Comfort. Lord, I heard Molly. I've got a job where I could go elsewhere. I could pick up and go to the nations, and I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I just don't want to leave my nice house and my lifestyle. Comfort controls me, consumes me. The opinions of others at times controls me. Lord, I want to be a witness for you. I want to champion your truth. I want to be bold. I want to be courageous. I want to make inroads relationally with my neighbors, with my family, with my friends, only if I can do it without people thinking I'm an idiot. I don't, I don't want people to think less of me. I don't want to wade into awkward conversations. So if I, can, if I can do all that, not have awkward conversations, not have people think less of me because I'm so controlled by the opinions of others, then I'm, I'm all for that. Whenever there is something or someone that controls or consumes you, whether it's control or comfort or the opinions of others or the preservation of life, right? You have people who get a bad diagnosis from a doctor and their whole world is turned upside down. You say, well, Nate, have you ever had a diagnosis like that? No, I haven't. So I'm not meaning to be trite, but what we see in those moments at times with people is what they really loved and longed for is my health. My health. Or what I really want is to be a parent. Or what I really want, what controls me, what consumes me is my me time, my free time, my extracurricular activities, or my health, or the accumulation of money. What we're doing when we acknowledge by God's grace and with transparency, this is what controls me, this is what consumes me, that is what you are really Serving, And in the moment, in Genesis 20, we get a glimpse into the heart of Abraham. What controlled him was not God's promises, not God's ways, not God's truth, not God's providence. What controlled him was, I want preservation of life. You say, well, maybe it was because he was trying to make sure that the promises of God would be extended and actually take place. Maybe. We'll give Abraham the benefit of the doubt, and if you're a believer, one day we'll ask him. Okay, we'll ask him. Hey, what was really motivating you? Pastor Nate said this, is, that, is it that? And I, I, think, I think I'm right, but I, I could be wrong. It's happened 1,900 times before. Abimelech then actually rebukes Abraham. I think this is fascinating. You have someone who's not a believer rebuking someone who's been given the promise of God and it's been restated to him several times. And I can't help to think that the rebuke of Abraham has a divine prompting or divine tone to it. Just like God had orchestrated Abimelech's repentance, appears to him in a dream, and Abimelech rightly acquiesces to that, says, okay, I don't want to do what I was going to do. I'm going to go to Abraham. I'm going to give him back his wife. I think there was a divine tone and prompting to Abimelech's words to Abraham. Complications of sin, in this particular instance, Abraham's sin, are not going to hinder God's faithfulness to his promises. Because we see in chapter 21, look at what Moses, the writer of Genesis, tells us. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. These events take place when Abraham is a hundred stinking years old. A hundred years old. 
How long after he entered Canaan? So I thought about a quiz. We put it up on the screens. How long after Abraham entered into Canaan did these promises come to fruition? Was it 10 years? Was it 15 years? Was it 20 years? Was it 25 years? It was 25 years. God's promises are not slow in being fulfilled. From our perspective, they are at times. My goodness, it took God 25 years. Yet God fulfilled his promise exactly as he said it would. Just like the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, if you will, in Galatians said of Jesus Christ. At the appointed time, God brought forth his, his son. Not too early, not too late. It wasn't a delay. God somehow wasn't hindered in bringing about the appointment where his son would step out of heaven and be born of a virgin, at the appointed time, God brought forth his son. And the narrator wants us to understand the gravity of what's going on. Look at verse 2 and verse 5 and verse 7 of chapter 21. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his what age? His old age. Verse 5. Abraham was a hundred years old. Verse 7, and she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his... What is the narrator doing? Is it that he's having a temporary memory lapse that Abraham is old? What he's doing, he's writing to the original audience, which is not us. The original audience was Israel. And he's reminding Israel, Abraham was what? Old. And old people don't have kids. And the first service, people said, amen. And lots of old people said, amen. I don't, I don't want to have kids at 62 or 75. Old people don't have kids. The narrator is wanting us to understand that what God did in Abraham and Sarah was a miracle. It was supernatural. We gloss over the text. We read it quickly, quickly, real, real flippantly, and we forget that God has created us as emotional beings. God has revealed himself as Adonai to Abraham, the Lord Almighty, who does the miraculous by way of his power and his might. And God took an old man and an old woman and brought about a wife, brought about a child at the ripe old age of 90. God did it. It was a miracle, and it needs to move us emotionally. But at times, we read through the Scriptures, and we're not moved. God wants us to be moved that he actually did something that everybody around them, including Abraham and Sarah, thought that it would never happen. And they tried valiantly to do it on their own. And then God said, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. You're going to be old, you're going to be old, you're going to be old. You are going to be old. Why? Because I want everybody to know I'm the one who did it. I'm the one who did it. There are so many parallels to our lives today. Uh, I, I just don't have time, and I'll get on a rabbit trail, and it's not in my notes, so I need to stick to my notes, as my wife said. Verse 2. Again, what is the reader doing? He's wanting to draw us into the fact that God did it. God did the miraculous. But look at, verse, look, look at verses 1 through 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. Three different times. Said, spoken, promised. Said, spoken, promised. What is the narrator? What is Moses doing again? He's wanting to draw us in, and he's wanting to teach Israel 
who might be thinking, God's not going to be faithful, God's not reliable, God's not trustworthy. He wants to teach us, November 25th, 2018, Foothills Baptist Church, all the people who've gathered, you might be thinking, God's not faithful, God's not trustworthy, God's not reliable. He's wanting to draw us in and say, God is faithful. God's reliable. God is trustworthy. When he says something, it will happen. When he says it, it will happen. John Sailhammer, what a cool last name, says this. The plan not only came about, but more importantly, it happened as it was announced. Thus, the narrative calls attention to God's faithfulness to his word, to his careful attention to the details of his plan. And we begin to see in chapter 21, Abraham's faith begins to grow and mature. If you were to go back and trace the storyline of Abraham's life, he leaves Ur not knowing where he's going to go, leaves a vocation, leaves his family business, leaves what is normal and convenient and maybe even comfortable. He doesn't even know exactly where he's going to go, but he tells his family, hey, the Lord's going to reveal it to me. He gives Lot the choice of the land. He pursues and defeats kings who kidnapped his nephew Lot. His faith, as Kent Hughes, a commentator, said, is growing and ascending to such heights, to such unwavering belief that God would keep his word, that Abraham would be willing to do something unthinkable. Chapter 22, sacrifice his laughter. Well, what's his laughter? You know that Isaac's Name means laughter. And God never intended for Abraham to actually sacrifice Isaac. There were people that um, practiced child sacrifice, and God is not trying to institute a practice of child sacrifice. He's wanting to test Abraham. Abraham, this promised child, do you love me enough to be willing to give up everything? And we'll see next week that is actually the case. And there is such a clear line from Genesis 22 to the Father's provision that's found in Christ, it's just, it's absolutely impossible to miss. What we see in this chapter, chapter 20 and chapter 21, complications of sin do not hinder God's faithfulness to his promises. God is faithful, God is trustworthy, God is in control. And there are some wild adventures that Abraham goes on. He's not spared from hardship. He's not spared from difficulties. He's not spared from suffering. He's not spared from hard conversations. And that's consistent with what we see all throughout the scriptures. A trustworthy God, a reliable God, has a purpose that is not hindered by sin and the complication that sin brings, the messiness that it creates, the heartache and trauma that it often brings. God has been and is and forever will be faithful to his promise. There are twists and there are turns. And we see that in the unfolding of God's promises and the life of Abraham. We certainly see it in the life of the person and the work of Jesus. And the message of Christianity teaches that there will be difficulties. That there will be hardships. You may be married and your spouse may have said or is saying, or might say in the future, hey, I, this, is, this is not for me. You might have difficulties in your vocation. You might have a bout to sin where you struggle with this particular sin. It seems to constantly get the upper hand. You might have family members or friends or, God forbid, a child 
get ravaged with cancer, the message of Jesus, the message that God wants us to know and embrace, doesn't promise prosperity and tranquility. It doesn't promise a life of ease. If anything, it promises the opposite of that. The good news of Christ promises you that despite all of the hardships, despite all of the difficulties, that if you're a believer, just like Abraham was and Isaac and Jacob and down through the line, if you are in Christ, if you have believed in the promises of God, despite whatever happens in your life, you are never beyond and outside the fatherly provision of God, ever. Now, I should probably preach like a 12-week series on, on that statement alone because it should and probably does produce a lot of questions. But God's providence and God's sovereignty is also his goodness and his kindness to us. They, they all go together. It's not as if one day God's providential over life and his kindness is removed. Or God's really kind because he gives you an easy set of circumstances, but his providence is removed. God's kind and sovereign and good and providential over our lives. And his providence guides us to the cross where God promises Abraham, any follower of God, he promises to give us a hope and a future and strength for each and every day. God's promises are not hindered by the complication of sins. And I am grateful as I look about Abraham's life, who's given another, another opportunity, another test from Genesis 12 to Genesis 20, and he actually fails. And you would think that no way is God going to continue to strive with him. And yet in spite of his disobedience, in spite of his rebellion, in spite of his inconsistency, God remains steadfast to his promises to Abraham. And look at verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Again, remember, she laughed in the tent. And the angel said, why did your wife laugh? And Sarah says, I didn't laugh. And the angel says, oh, but you did. And you're going to have a child. His name's going to be Isaac, whose name is going to be Laughter. And then Sarah says, now everybody's laughing with me. What are they laughing about? Not in mockery, an absolute stunned joy and elation that God did what he said he would do. Despite sin, all throughout the book of Genesis and every subsequent book, God remains faithful to his promises, which should produce in us a hearty amen, whether out loud or in our heart. All right? Let me pray. Father, prayed this same thing in the first and I want to pray the same thing in the second. I can imagine and know as I see the faces of guests and regular attenders and members that there are some who are going through really difficult times. Health, relational difficulties, financial difficulties, or a seemingly absence of your presence in their life as if they are alone. And Father, they're not, and I pray that you would speak to them through your word, that they would speak to their heart and talk to themselves based upon your word and truth and the promises, that they would understand that you are a God who never leaves, never forsakes, never abandons us, 
that those promises are contingent upon your character. And if you do leave and you do abandon us and you do forsake us, you are not a God that we should follow, but you are a God who is faithful to his promises to those that yield their lives to you. So I pray for those that are discouraged and having a difficult time. And God, you know in a way that so many of us do not, that you would encourage and refresh and comfort them right where they are. Father, I pray for those in the room that as the Apostle Paul says in Thessalonians, there are many who are doing well, that eyes are fixed upon you and they are living obedient, joy-filled lives as they walk in the victory that is theirs in Christ. So I pray, as Paul says, that they would continue to excel all the more and that you would use brothers and sisters in Christ, in our fellowship here at Foothills, to encourage and comfort and strengthen and pray and walk with people who need to be encouraged and walked with. We are a family that has come into existence just like the miraculous work that you brought forth in Sarah's womb. A boy that was not there has been brought about through your majesty and your sovereignty. And we have not always been the family of God. We did not always exist, but yet you brought us into the family of God. Where there was no belief, you drew us to yourself, and now we have believed upon you. Help us to be a people who marvel and are astonished and reverence you that you will always remain faithful to your promises. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that truth. May it produce in us a deep spirit of gratitude in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.